Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? Runs that poignant lyric from the American hit musical, Hamilton. Who tells your story? Well, storytelling has been at the heart of this podcast for six years and counting, but it hadn't occurred to me until a few weeks ago to start a new series that will feature some of your favorite Motley Fool personalities telling their story. Because regardless of who lives, who dies, and the truth is we all do, the unanswered question is, who tells your story? And I thought, well, why not have them do so? Why not have you do so this week, Jason Moser? Matt Argersinger, where'd you come from? And if you had to tell your story in just exactly 150 words, about 10 sentences, how would you tell it? And what does the stock graph of your life look like? And what were the three key moments that made you into the investor that you are today? Telling Their Stories, Volume 2, kicks off this week only on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm excited about this week's show. It's going to be a delight to share my friends Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger and their stories with you. I love your stories. We have so much fun mailbag every month, often hearing your stories. To have people who are some of our better known analysts, advisors, personalities, people you've gotten to know on Motley Fool Live or hosting our podcasts. That is a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to telling their stories, uh, volume two this week. I want to mention last week, of course, I picked my 29th five-stock sampler, uh, five stocks to teach rule breakers. And those stocks are up 1% so far in the first week. Only problem, the market's up 1.5%. So we're just slightly underwater, but you know we're not playing the one-week game here. I do want to mention that, of course, the name of this podcast is Rule Breaker Investing, and it keys to the Motley Fool Rule Breakers service. And you should know, as a regular listener, you can get 67% off our Rule Breakers service. You can just go to http colon slash slash. Do people still say that anymore? I just did rbioffer.fool.com. I see Rick Engdahl, my producer, shaking his head. No, people do not still say HTTP colon slash slash anymore. <laughs> Old school. Speaking of five-stock samplers, next week's show will be a review of Palooza show. Three past five-stock samplers will be reviewed. Five stocks for the coronavirus from one year ago. Five stocks for the age of miracles from two years ago. And then three years ago, we'll be closing out five stocks I own that you should too. So we'll be discovering together whether you should have owned those stocks over the last three years that I own. And how are these samplers doing? I'll mention one of them quite poorly, actually. The other two, wow. So I look forward to sharing and learning and sharing the learning with you next week. All right. Well, without further ado, I want to remind you of the three building blocks of the Telling Their Stories series. The first one is 150 words exactly in your own words telling the story of your life. That's building block number one. Building block number two, hey, we're all investors, right? My dear listeners, you are too. And all of us understand the concept of a stock graph. But what if instead of graphing a stock, you were graphing your life? What are the highs and the lows? And my guests, my talented guests have done that and will speak to whatever they'd like to in the stock graphs of their lives. And then, of course, the third and final building block are the three moments, the three key moments that have shaped you 
into the investor that you are. Well, I have two wonderful longtime Motley Fool analysts and personalities joining with me this week. And the first one is Jason Moser. Jason, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be back. Well, Jason, it's a pleasure to have you back. And I dropped you a few notes over the weekend and said, are you ready? You're really going to write exactly 150 words to capture the Jason Moser story? I believe you've done so. Can you confirm? I have. have. have? Confirm it. I will confirm. Yep. Excellent. So, well, thank you very much. And, you know, before we get into it, could you just briefly remind us how you're spending your time at The Fool today? How I'm spending my time at the fool? Uh, yeah, it's you know I'm I'm doing a lot of things. Thankfully, they, they keep me busy. The the two primary uh, responsibilities these days, I am the lead advisor for our augmented reality and beyond service, as well as our next gen supercycle service. Uh, and, and the next gen supercycle uh, service is geared towards five G technology. So we're we're pursuing really that big market opportunity, whereas augmented reality is focused on immersive technology and stuff like that. And then uh, I I get to spend a lot of time doing uh, some of our our great shows, right? I get to host Industry Focus on Mondays, uh, do Motley Fool Money on Fridays, and a a little bit of market foolery in between. And every once in a while, a a little impromptu showing on something like Wool Breakers Investing. Absolutely. And here you are in Motley Fool Live and really also speaking in the media quite a lot, Jason. So you are uh, just the timber of your voice would be recognizable to many, many a Motley Fool over the years. And thank you for all your contributions that you've made. What was your, do you remember what your first day was at the Fool? I do. As a matter of fact, it was as memorable as they come because I don't know if you remember this. It was 11, 11 plus years ago. But do you remember when we had the tour of the world via cuisine? Um, when I came into HQ, we had separated all of our all of our areas on the fourth floor, and I believe the fifth floor was involved too, or maybe actually we might not have even been on the fifth floor at that point. But we had separated everything out into different parts of the world and cuisine that was, uh, you know, part of those of those areas. And, and so, as as a noob, uh, all we did we came in, we were the judges, right? We just went from <laughs> place to place to place, eating food and drinking beverages and, and judging people, which was the most memorable first day uh, ever. <laughs> <laughs> that is so capital F foolish. I love it. I had forgotten that, Jason. Thank you for that memory. Yes, sir. Uh, delightful. All right. Well, let's wind it up here. Jason Anthony Moser, tell your story. Okay. 150 words. I'm trusting that my word count in Microsoft Word is guiding me uh, correctly here, but here we go. Born in Charleston, South Carolina on December 26, 1972, I was adopted by a doctor and his wife and have two younger siblings. My childhood was an athletic one, but when my father introduced me to golf at the age of five, the lure of the game never let me go and has played a big role in much of what has happened in my life since. I graduated from Wofford College in 1995 and worked as a PGA club professional for six years before moving on to bigger things, including marrying my wife, Robin, in 2001. I've lived in Cairo, Egypt, and Astana, Kazakhstan, among other places, and worked at a bank, an insurance company, and the State Department for a time. We have two daughters, both teens now. I'm just a guy with three dogs, one horse, a happy family, and a lot of stocks. Not too shabby. <laughs> Spectacular, Jason. Well, let's, let's touch back on a few of those those moments. I, I knew a lot of that, but I never know all of it. And that's part of why we do what we do. So golf certainly yes. comes to mind. Um, I, I, I might have once played 
maybe half of a round with you. Um, I'm not much of a golfer. I do admire the sport, but I know that as a former club pro, it's been a big part of your life. Yeah. I mean, you're pretty, what is it? Do you, do you play golf continuously today, even as a, a dad with kids and all the rest where it's harder to do that? It, well, I do still play. Absolutely. It is, it is difficult to find the time, but by the same token, I, you know, as, as a father and, and, and you know this very well, you, you understand that, that window in your life as a father, when you're kids are young. I mean, that's a very short window of time. And so I don't mind keeping golf kind of on the back burner, just playing whenever I can to make sure that I have the time to to really be with my family, because ultimately that's really what matters most to me. And so I do play. Um, It's not as frequent as I used to, but, but uh, I do still play and I look forward to being able to play a little bit more when I get older. You betcha. Greatest golf moment or best handicap achieved? Ooh, okay. Well, Handicap is that's going to be tricky because when you're when you're a pro you you don't go by handicap. I will say, uh, See, I don't know these things. Yeah, what do you mean? well, because you're a professional, you're basically playing at scratch all the time. I mean, I playing straight up, no handicaps. Um, Wait, you don't get a handicap? No, no. I thought everybody it, playing golf gets a handicap. Well, you know, as as amateurs, we do, and thankfully, I've gotten my amateur status back, so I'm able to play to a handicap. But I, at the top of my game, I mean, it was you know, I I, I was able to break par on a fairly consistent mm. basis, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then I, you know, there have been a lot of, of great moments. I mean, I've played a lot of terrific courses, but for me, uh, you know, one, one, one thing I just have always enjoyed is playing golf with my dad. Um, and we had a seven year stretch here, uh, recently over the last decade where we played seven straight years at a member guest tournament, uh, down at his club in Albany, Georgia, which it was just such a wonderful stretch. We seven straight years, never a rain day. I mean, it was just the best weather possible. Uh, so that just stands out to me as, as uh, a time that just was was a lot of fun. And, and honestly, he's 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 my favorite golfing partner in the world, right? So anytime I get to go tee it up with my dad is is a good time. Jason, I did not know that you were adopted. You mentioned that briefly. Do you remember when you were first told? I'm always curious about that by your parents. Hey, you. We've adopt. We adopted you, Jason. Yeah, you know it's funny. I don't specifically remember because they told me as soon as I was able to comprehend it. Um, and and I like I said, I have two siblings. They were adopted as well. All all three of us from different families. Wow. Just a situation where my mom and dad just you know they weren't able to have kids. I mean that's 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 one of those things, I guess. Um, so they they just told me whenever I was able to comprehend it and. Uh, for me, it's, it's always been, I, I, you know, some people, I guess, could have hangups or concerns with it. For me, I was always, uh, I, I've always looked at it as a blessing. I mean, I was adopted by a doctor and his wife. I mean, I've been on a golf course all my life. Like I literally hit the jackpot. <laughs> and so for me, this guy, the, the, this, this man and this woman who taught me everything I know and got me into golf and investing and sent me to college, I mean, it's just, mm. life has worked out very well. So for me, it was a real blessing and, um, you know, hey, listen, I'm very, very grateful that uh, that things worked out the way they did. Spectacular. Now, uh, you mentioned Kazakhstan, and I think a lot of us who may not have known anything about Kazakhstan <laughs> may have learned a little bit more, although I don't know if it was real when Borat came yeah. out <laughs> moving in 2006. <laughs> I believe it was banned and maybe still is in the nation of Kazakhstan. It's possible. It, it wasn't necessarily a Chamber of Commerce winner for the country, but um, but I'm curious. You mentioned the State Department. Like, how much time did you spend in Kazakhstan, and how the heck did you get out there? 
Uh, okay, so we were in Kazakhstan for two years. My wife works for the State Department. And so in uh, 2002-ish or something like that, she had the opportunity to move to Egypt for a post there at the embassy. And at the time, we didn't have any kids. We didn't own a home. And it was just the two of us. And, and we thought, well, hey, that, that's an adventure. And so we, we did that. We went to Egypt and we were there for three years. Wow. And then we had an ongoing assignment to Kazakhstan for another two from there. Um, and, and so that was, that was the impetus behind it. And, and so while we were doing that, I got, that's when I got the job with the state department and, uh, was able to work, work there, uh, during, during our time at those two embassies. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you want to get really meta, David, I mean, this is kind of funny. I, I'm not sure if Borat was actually banned in Kazakhstan. I absolutely can believe it was. Um, but we actually saw that movie in Kazakhstan. So uh-huh. yeah, like we had some way to get DVDs sent to us through the embassy. And so it was kind of like a, it may have been Netflix actually, but we were able to get, uh, we were able to get DVDs. And so we actually watched that movie there. And you know, I got to say, I mean, I love the laugh. I don't know. The movie didn't really do much for me. But uh, I can understand why Kazakhs probably want to sweep it under the rug. <laughs> it does say that it was banned. My friend Wikipedia, I've sometimes said my best friend Wikipedia, tells me it was banned in almost all Arab countries. And the government of Kazakhstan denounced the film. But I believe I misspoke, Jason. I do not believe that it was banned in Kazakhstan. Now, I knew we were going to talk some about Kazakhstan. So I did a little bit of homework. I learned a lot. I had no idea. It's the ninth largest country in the world. It is about, I mean, like from west to east, if you picture Portugal perched right there in the Atlantic Ocean, you spread all the way across through Germany. That's like the size of Kazakhstan-ish. And I also saw it has the one of the lower population densities in the entire world, approximately six humans per square kilometer. Um, for comparison purposes, Canada is even less dense at just four humans per square kilometer, uh, and Mongolia is kind of a similar country in that regard. But most of us are surrounded by a lot more humans than the average Kazakhstani. Yes, yes. And Mongolia uh, being being right there next to Kazakhstan, you're right. It's, sure is. It is a very vast area, a lot of wide open space. Um Going back to golf, interesting. Interestingly enough, they did have a golf course there at the time. It was only nine holes. They were still building it out, so it was just nine playable holes. Uh, but they they even had a, a golf tournament there that I played in, the President's Cup. I got to shake the hand of President Nazarbayev, <laughs> which was pretty wow. cool. I mean, you know, these are things that. If, if I say them out loud, it sounds like I'm just making it up, but it actually did happen, I promise. And I've got the trophy on my mantle to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> that is spectacular. The name Kazakh, by the way, comes from the ancient Turkic word kaz, which means to wander. And so you can picture those nomadic people uh, for centuries, thousands of years in Central Asia. Uh, Kazakhstan will now move on, but Kazakhstan is the largest country in Central Asia, which is kind of the belly of the world in a lot of ways. So it's a fascinating place, and I'm glad that it helped shape you. Well, speaking of shaping you, let's move on now to the stock graph of your life. Jason, you spent some time tracing it out. Why don't you start talking us through it a little bit? Sure thing. Okay, so uh, as I mentioned, being adopted, I was probably highly speculative at the time, David. And maybe I, I don't want to say I was a penny stock, but I, you know, my mom and dad—they didn't really know what they were getting. So, so I, I was—I was probably a bit more of a spec play. But uh, yeah, things worked out well. I mean, it was a steady and slow march up through my childhood. I had 
a lot of fun as a kid. I had a ton of great experiences that really helped me grow. Um, as I mentioned, it was, it was very uh, athletic, played all sorts of organized sports from soccer and basketball to baseball and swimming. Uh, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, uh, was even able to travel abroad. So my my life as as a child, I mean, it, it was it was a lot of fun and in a steady and slow march up. Um, when I got to high school, I think that trend continued. Uh, I continued to play a ton of golf. I did well in school. Uh, made the all state golf team, the all state South Carolina uh, all state golf team. And, and as I was preparing for college, I mean, I was excited about all of the possibilities and. Uh, so, so I, I would say through those first 18 years or so, it was a nice, it was a nice steady climb. You know, things, things were great. I'm curious, Jason, I mean, you have always projected in your 11 years as a fellow fool to me, and I'm sure to so many who listen to you as a pretty positive guy. I think we like that about you. And I, I think that's really consonant with Motley Fool values where optimism plays so importantly into our culture. Would you say that you were raised that way? Are your dad and mom just that way? I'm always curious where that kind of positivity comes from. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's funny you say that because I I feel like maybe that's something I've always tried to work on. Um, it's very easy for me to, to, to get a little glass half empty at times. And so I try to counter that. I try to fight that, honestly. Huh. Um, so so I, I, I do feel like my, my mom and dad have always been positive folks. I mean, they've, they've always expressed, you know, the, the value in, in working hard and kind of making your own fate, so to speak, understanding, I mean, because the key words of advice my father gave me, I'll never forget the world owes you nothing. And, and, you know, that was one of those things I, I, I lived, I live by it even, even to this day, really. And so I, I, I feel like that's, that's definitely been a part of my upbringing. I think golf really had a lot to do with that because I think if you are a, if you're a glass half empty, person constantly then, then golf you're not going to be very good at golf <laughs> you, you need you need some sort of positive frame of mind to be a good good golfer but uh, I, I will say i'm always glass half full i'm still not very good at golf but i i definitely take your point i'm curious yeah. jason you mentioned what your dad said to you how about um i we learned so much from our parents what's what's something that stands out as something you've learned from your mother over the years oh wow geez so much i mean you know my mom one of the things I always brag on her about, and, and, and it's even to this day, I mean, this this may seem not like much, but to me, it's huge. Um, I, I spent a lot of time as a kid in the kitchen watching my mom cook. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot about how to mm. cook, about how to handle a home, how to take care of things around the house and whatnot uh, from her. But, but really, cooking was something that she gave to me that it stuck. And so even to this day, I mean, I, I, my, my wife would agree. I am, I am the cook of the, of the family. And, and right. I mean, that's, that's something I am very proud to be able to give my family is just, it's a, a way I can contribute. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, they, they both have taught me so much. I, I will say too, I mean, you know, my, my mom went through uh, a, a, she went through cancer uh, a while back. I mean, it's been probably 15 years, I think now. Mm. Um, but, but that was another stretch of time where going back to the power of positive thinking, I, I mean, I really, I watched her go through that and keep her head up and stay strong 
uh, and it just didn't get her down. And, and it's just another one of those examples of, of when, you, when you can really you fight that glass half, half empty tendency. If you can, you can just try to look at things with a little bit more of a positive lens and fight. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, we learn so much from our parents. Uh, it's hard even to pull those things apart. But often it's not even what they're saying, although that counts too. It's what they're embodying. Yeah, they're living their lives. And yeah, what a wonderful thing to pick up. I have absolutely no skills in the kitchen. Oh, I don't want to blame my mom, but she didn't really spend much time in the kitchen. Well, so. <laughs> well, that was the beauty. Like, I mean, my father being a full time doctor, my mom was she was the full time homemaker. Now, I, I don't mean to say that's all she did, because she also my, my father running the laboratory at the hospital. He's a pathologist. He kind of ran his own business there in a sense, and she she basically ran the books for him. So she was a part time homemaker, part time accountant. Um, but but even to this day, she and I will swap recipes. And folks, I mean, listen, you know I like McCormick a lot, David. There's a reason why I use this stuff religiously. I mean, I'm using something from McCormick every single day in this house. Yeah, spectacular, and it has been a wonderful stock. For uh, investors, and indeed, it's a longtime pick of mine in Stock Advisor. Yep, I so October 2014, and it's been a market beater. It is a great company. You are truly living the McCormick life. Uh, <laughs> talk about making our portfolios reflect our best vision for our future. That's a great one. Well, Jason, you're getting into your adult years. Yes. Yeah. Well, so college, I, I would say, is probably. College was the first time where my life sort of things I started sort of kind of treading water a little bit. And maybe that was it was I had a tremendous time in college. I loved it four great, wonderful years, and I'm very grateful for my degree. Um, I, I, but I, I would say I was probably treading water a bit more. There was the first time school ever really challenged me. Um, and, and then golf became immensely more difficult because school was so challenging and the level of competition which was so much stronger. Um, I had a long-distance relationship going on. So I, there were a lot of things that, while it was very enjoyable, I don't know there was a tremendous amount of growth maybe. I mean, it just felt like I was kind of treading water a little bit. It was just a very challenging time from a number of different angles. Um, so your stock's going sideways there. Maybe um, so, yeah. A little ebb and flow, a little ebb and flow there for a few years. But I have to imagine. I mean, were you were you on the golf team all four years? No, I wasn't. I was on my ah. freshman year. My freshman year, I was, and and then um, it just became clear that I needed to make a choice, and I could either focus on school uh, or I could yeah. go off and do my own thing. And my mom and dad basically cut me a deal. They said, "Hey, listen, you got four years to make it happen. We're going to pay for your education, but if you if you choose to go a different route." That's up to you, but it's going to be your responsibility. And so thankfully, I had the wherewithal at the time to say, you know what, I'm going to go and get this degree and then kind of go do whatever else I wanted to go do. Sounds um, like the world owed you nothing, Jason. <laughs> the, world, the world owed me nothing at all. And I was very, very thankful that my mom and dad were able to foot the bill for those four years because that, that degree uh, still means a lot today. What year did you graduate, Wofford? 1995, majored in economics. Hmm. All right, play forward then. I mean, I think I came online with you around 2010. So what happens 1995 to 2010? I know there's Egypt. I'm sure there's a marriage. It's definitely going to be some kids in there. Yeah. Um, what are some highlights in that 15-year period for you? Yeah. You know, I think this was when things started started that trend back upward. After school, I focused on uh, after school I focused on golf, um, and, and ultimately got a job in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, and I think that was when I really started. That's kind of when I broke out of that sideways 
patterns, so to speak, and, and started kind of my, my trend back up there. It was exciting. It was my first real job. David, I was making $15,500 a year salary. And, and I mean, come on, man, that's nothing, right? But at the time, that was everything. And I was it's living more on my than own. zero, and you got some perks <laughs> to that job too, Yes, I'm assuming. Like, play all the golf I wanted. I got free meals at the club. I really didn't have a lot to worry about other than just making it to work every day and, uh, and doing my job well. Um, and so I was there for a couple of years and, and I was able then, uh, I moved to Maryland uh, after two years in Greenville to further my career uh, with the PGA. I worked at a club up in Zaverna Park uh, for for a handful of years. And-, and, and Jason, I don't know the life of the club pro for PGA. Like, are you bouncing around because there are better opportunities, or why not just stay with the same club for twenty years? What's the what's the mentality of a PGA club pro? Yeah, well, a younger guy. Yeah, they're different levels. I mean, you're an assistant golf professional or you're a head golf professional, and so the goal of the assistant golf professional is ultimately to become a head golf professional. Um, and and I mean, there there are different clubs out there. I mean, there are clubs that are corporately owned, and there are clubs that are just private member owned clubs. And the dream, really, for a younger golf pro was to be at that private member-owned club uh, because it was just you weren't beholden to, to some big corporation where you were more or less just a, mm. a little statistic, right? You're a part of a family. I mean, just that one unique club. And that was that was why I ended up going to Maryland was because that, that club up in Maryland was just a little private member-owned club. And so it was, it was a nice step up. And I think uh, ultimately the goal is to get that head pro job. Uh, they are few and far between. When you find a good one, those guys and gals typically want to stay in them for a long time. <laughs> Um, it, for me, I would say that moving up to Maryland, that job after a couple more years, that's when things started to plateau again. And, and I, I, I hate to say it, but I think even started to decline a little bit. And, and I think the main reason is, is that I was losing interest in the profession. And I don't know specifically what it was, but it, it started to snowball. And, and I eventually got to the point where I, I didn't even want to be on a golf course. And when that happened, I knew it was a big problem because I love to be on the golf course. I mean, that's just, I've, I've been on a golf course all my life. So when that happened, I knew that that's when I knew I needed to make a change. And, and so at that age, you know, don't really have much in the way of money. I have a little bit saved up, but not a lot. But thankfully, the, the degree, and, and that was when I made the effort to exit the golf profession. And, and that's when I got the, the job uh, with Bank of America, believe it or not, um, I, I would say that was a period of time where, yeah, thing, things, I, that was a little bit of a low point, a little bit of a low point. And Jason, what year is that? That was, let me see here. That would have been 2002, I think. So how Late does a PGA golf club assistant pro um, all of a sudden land a job at Bank America? Well, uh, taking that lesson from my mom, right? Fight, don't give up. Uh, I happened to just see at a banking center, a Bank of America banking center one time going by that they were holding sort of an open house for folks to come in, learn more and submit resumes. And, and, um, and you so pulled your car over? I, I, well, I mean, not that day. <laughs> I took notes of the date and, and the time when they were going to be doing that. I prepared my resume and then I, I drove over there and, and I, uh, I met with one of the banking center managers. Uh, one of the recruiters, and uh, you know, I, I, I just it was the right place at the right time. I don't know what I did to deserve that shot, but they gave it to me, and uh, ultimately, I ended up working at the banking center there on Washington Street in Alexandria, right down the street from Full HQ. I know that place. Yeah, and so I was a loan officer there for two years, right before we moved to Egypt. And 
You mentioned your wife, Robin. At what point did she enter your life and all of a sudden whisk you away overseas? Well, you, you heard me earlier say that golf has played a big role in my life in virtually every way. I met Robin at the club where I worked in Greenville. She was working as a part-time receptionist going through college, um, and, and I was working there full-time as a golf professional. And, you know, I, I, we met. And it was just a, it was, it was a little bit of a, of a courting process, but I finally talked her into going out with me one night and, and, um, it was funny. We, we went to dinner and unfortunately the restaurant that we went to was owned by a member at the club and he decided to comp our dinner. And I thought, oh my word, she's going to think I'm cheap. And I planned this and I swear to you, David, I did not, <laughs> I didn't plan it, but it's what happened. Um, but, but that was, that was our first date. And, and thankfully, um, in two 2001, she she agreed to become my wife, and, and we've been happily married ever since. Well, congratulations Thanks. on 20-ish, and that's spectacular. So, Jason, three years Egypt, two years Kazakhstan. What got you back to the East Coast of the United States of America and somewhere circa 2010? I know that you were in or around Alexandria, Virginia once again. We were, yeah. We we got done with um, our time in Kazakhstan, and uh, it, it while we were in Kazakhstan, we had bought a home in Noonan, Georgia, which is just a suburb of Atlanta, and so we had sort of a home base there. Uh, so we had gone back to Georgia for a, a short time. Um, along the way, I had discovered the Motley Fool, and that that was what ultimately in in 2010 led me to apply for the analyst development program. And and I would say after the after our time abroad, which was a wonderful stretch of time, and I, I feel like I grew a lot uh, just in those five years. Uh, that that stock chart really really took off in 2010 because that was when I started working at the Fool, um, and I mean that was like an earnings pop. David. I mean, that, that just, the stock took off and it really hadn't looked back since. <laughs> That's spectacular, Jason. So here you are, I'm doing the math. I'm, I'm placing you kind of mid to late forties. Is that an accurate representation of Moser today? That is correct. I'm 48 and I'll be 49 in December. Wonderful. So, well, what a 10 years now, 11 years it's been, Jason, and thank you for that. There's a lot of overlap from one section to another within our three building blocks. Let's now move on to the three key moments that have made you the investor that you are. What's number one? Yeah, number one for me, it was it was one particular stretch of time. Uh, rides to school during my eighth grade year, when my dad and I would talk about stocks and investing. Um, it was just a, a point in time where my dad was able to take me to school in the morning. That wasn't very often, but I remembered it vividly because it was something that didn't happen very often. So for my eighth grade year, he would take me to school in the mornings and. That's when he he and I would talk about this stuff, and that's really what lit the fire. I mean, when I look back, that was where where my interest was really peaked. Early days, yeah. I mean, you know, eighth grade. I mean, it, it just money. I, I I started taking an interest, and he was telling me about how the stock market worked. And as a physician, he he found some interesting stocks in the in the medical arena, and he he was excited, and that 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 excitement was was uh, contagious. No no pun intended. One of those stereotypes, which is probably unfair, sounds like in this particular case, it's quite unfair. One of those stereotypes out there is that doctors don't know what the heck to do with all that <laughs> money that they're making, and they're often getting fleeced by somebody. Sounds like that wasn't the doctor that was your dad. He He's had some hits and he's had some misses. Uh, well, we no, all no have. question there, but that yeah, we all have, and thankfully, he's a pretty humble guy. Um, but I tell you, he really enjoys 
my job now because we get to talk so much shop, right? When I go down to see him, it's either golf or stocks and it's just nonstop. It's a lot of fun. There is a lot of overlap. Uh, A lot of people listening right now love both of those things. I think uh, golfers over-index toward being stock market investors (laughs) and vice versa, even though as somebody who's both I'm much better one than the other. But, uh, well, thank you. That's a that's a great first moment. That is a key moment. The earlier it happens in life, uh, the better off we are. And I know, Jason, you've done a great job as a dad with your daughters, getting them not just talking stocks, but really actively investing in probably well before eighth grade in their case. Not to say you were started late at all, but I think you started them early. I Yeah, yeah we got them started a little bit earlier than I even got started. That's wonderful. What's key moment number two? Uh, well, sitting in our house in the middle of a just freezing cold Kazakh winter, uh, I discovered The Motley Fool for the very first time. I was surfing the internet um, and ran across an article on CNN.com that linked me over to a Motley Fool story. And I remember clicking over to that story and thinking, whoa, I, I, I kind of like this. I, I can relate. I'm, I'm picking up what these guys are putting down. I, I think, I, I think, I think they're onto something. I mean, it, it was really that. That to me was a massive point in my life. I mean, I remember the feeling in the chair that I was sitting in when I discovered it because it is ultimately what got me here. And then a little, a little add-on to that story is it turned out I met a guy at the embassy who worked at the U.S. embassy there in Kazakhstan as well. And he says, hey, you know, we talked about golf and investing. He said, hey, you know, you ought to check out The Motley Fool sometime. They have a lot of good stuff. And I was like, you know, I just found out about it. And he's like, oh, really? Well, yeah, man. He's like, I have a friend that just got a job there. You know who that friend was, David? No. That was Mr. Matt Argersinger. That is so spectacular. I had no I idea my two guest stars are connected. That was how I met Matt first was through our friend at the embassy in Kazakhstan. And then fast forward to when we got done in Kazakhstan, Matt and that friend both met me down in Georgia for a little four-day golf trip. And that's when Matt and I started talking a little bit more about The Motley Fool. And Matt really persuaded me to apply for that ADP. That is spectacular. I bet I knew that back in the day. I, I probably, when I first met you, knew that, Jason, but time passes and my memory yeah. being what it is. It, yeah. So so I there's some kismet then that Jason and Matt get to tell their stories on the very same podcast. <laughs> I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it and, was fun. And Jason, help us close it out here. What, what's been key investor moment number three for you? Well, you mentioned my daughters earlier. So for me, it was really explaining to our daughters one day at a Panera Bread when they were five and six years old, what I meant when I said we owned a little piece of that restaurant. Uh, that that really was what spurred the conversation. That was a key moment in helping them get started as investors, understanding that you can be an owner of a business that you like. Um, that was the lesson that that really kicked it off. And I felt like Everything that my dad and my mom had given me, I felt like that that cycle was almost complete. I feel like maybe, you know, down the road, if they ever have have kids, then then maybe they'll be able to to continue those lessons as well. But it was really, it was really an important moment for me to be able to do that. Jason, that is outstanding, and I'm so grateful. Reflecting back on learning more about you today, to think about where you started. That we all start in the lower left of that graph of our lives. I'm pretty sure. I don't think anybody starts really high or if they end up upper left or lower right, they're probably not even at our company, let alone on this podcast. But to think about uh, your life through golf and certainly 
South Carolina guy all of a sudden ends up in Egypt for a few years. And, and so what, what an interesting life that you've led in Bank America and then all of a sudden the Motley Fool, which sounds inevitable when we think about it in, in reverse. But to go from year one to year 47 or eight or so uh, in the chronological order that we all must progress through, it's hard to know or to see what's yet to come. And yet what's yet to come, I suspect, will be spectacular in your next, I hope, 11 plus years of being a fool. So Jason, thank you so much for telling your story this week on Rule Breaker Investing. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. And next up to tell his story, my longtime friend and co-conspirator, I would say the same of Jason. Really, I'd say the same of Rick Engdahl. There's a lot of conspiracy at Fool HQ. And this is, of course, Matt Argersinger. Matt, great to have you back on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks, David. It's, it's, it's been a while. It's great to be back. Well, some will remember that you were really the pioneer of the market cap game show. And really, we have more listeners today than ever before. We've had a lot of people, I think, who are still listening years later. So, Matt, have to start by asking you, what is the market cap of Etsy? Oh, my gosh. You had to, you had to start with that. That uh, You know, I, I, all those times I had tried to guess Etsy, you know, for all those years, many years ago, uh, I, I, I severely undercounted the market cap every time. So, I'm going to go big this time. And I'm going to say it's got to be $24 billion. Outstanding. You didn't even look it up ahead of time. Uh, you are within the 10% or so range that we initially played the game. And so, Matt Argersinger, you have nailed it. Uh, it is $27 billion. I think it's kind of great, Matt, that you underguessed it slightly this time. Because before you were, as I recall, I thought, didn't you overguess it each time? And so I was like, Matt, you should buy Etsy if you think it's that big and it's only this small market cap. Oh, good point. That's right. That's right. So, okay, finally, I'm, I'm, I'm finally doing what I should do, which is underestimating the power of, of Etsy. <laughs> it's amazing to think about that market cap, which has gone up many fold since you first joined me on Rule Breaker Investing for our initial market cap game show. Uh, years ago. Well, forget about the market cap game show. I'm much more interested, Matt, in your story. And you've taken some time over the weekend to start with 150 words to tell your story. So let's kick it off. Matthew J. Argersinger, tell your story. Okay. Well, I spent most of my early life moving every few years. Uh, My dad was in the army, so I was born in Texas. Uh, I lived abroad in Germany for many years. uh, And after my dad retired, I uh, ended up graduating high school in Massachusetts, of all places. Uh, so from there, I studied uh, economics and theater at Brandeis University, uh, the kind of practical and artistic side of me, I guess. I, I moved to Washington, D.C. after graduation, worked a few years at a place called the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis. Um, I met my wife serendipitously while we were both cast in Biloxi Blues, uh, the famous Neil Simon play at the Little Theater of Alexandria, which is right down the street from Fool HQ. Uh, I joined The Motley Fool in January 2008 as an analyst and had the tremendous fortune uh, to work with you, David, on several occasions over the years. And that, I think, has made all the difference. Well, that is very kind, Matt. And I'm going to share a personal detail myself in a minute or two that connects us further. Um, I neglected to ask you just to remind all of our listeners, a lot of fools will already know this, how you're spending time today at The Fool, because you and I, yes, have worked together on services, Supernova, some stock advisors, some rule breakers over the years. But, and I know we're going to get this later, there's no question that this is running through your life, but the world of real estate and an opportunity to help us open up a whole new part of our company, Million Acres, that's where you're spending your time these days, right, Matt Argersinger, on The Million Acres? 
That's right. That's right. That's that's where I spend probably 90% of what I'm doing these days at The Motley Fool is uh, real estate investing, uh, Million Acres. Uh, it's our real estate uh, arm of The Motley Fool that we started a few years ago. And uh, we've launched a couple services since. Uh, millionacres.com is a great place to go if you want to learn, uh, you know, get free articles about real estate and really learn about all aspects of real estate investing. So I was excited that as the, as the company, we kind of moved into a new asset class uh, and explored that a little bit for investors. Well, and we were delighted that we had somebody who was so foolish, capital F, so knowledgeable and passionate and interested in that subject, and certainly real estate investing. Uh, underplayed at The Motley Fool our first 20 years or so, in part because Tom and I aren't really real estate guys. I mean, we we love the stock market and that's what we knew. But of the course of time, we kept meeting, getting to rub elbows with smarter and smarter people in other areas of the world. And sure enough, Matt Argersinger is one of them adding value through real estate today. But that 13-year Motley Fool career and counting one of the happiest things that I've been part of in the last 13 years at The Motley Fool. Matt, I, I mentioned a personal detail. So uh, you and I have both been on the stage at the Little Theater of Alexandria. And I'll just mention that a year or two before we started The Motley Fool, I had a role in the musical Big, Big River, which uh, is, of course, the retelling of Huckleberry Finn. And I was one of Huck's friends. I had one solo song, Arkansas, the technical name of the role of the person who sings Arkansas in Big River is Young Fool. And it's always been fun for me to think back on that. And then a couple of years later, a young fool would actually start a young fool. So, But I, I, I remember when you first mentioned that you were an econ and theater major, and I kind of had the same orientation at your University of North Carolina. And then for us both to have been a little theater of Alexandria is just hilarious to me. So there you thank go. You. Well, I, I know you shared that you'd, you'd been on the stage there, which I thought was tremendous. Uh, I, I didn't know that detail about the character, though. That's, uh, that's fantastic. <laughs> See, it, it really is fun. So many back connections. On. That's <clears throat> true. Now, Matt, sort of an army rat, a guy who traveled a lot because of, of course, his dad's calling. Um, how did that shape you as a person? Did you have to, I mean, the cliche is that you had to constantly make new friends and uh, you strike me as more of an extrovert. So I, I would think that you were good at making new friends, but it can also be hard as a kid. What was it like? It can, it can be hard, but you know, I, for some reason, I I always embrace the change. I always like the idea of uh, you go to a place, it's new and exciting. You spend a couple of years, three or four, maybe three or four years at, at most. Uh, and then you get to go to new school. And for me, it was always a chance to reinvent myself. Like I, I would meet new friends, I would learn new things. And I said, okay, well, now I'm in this new place. I'm going to try, see what it's like here, uh, see what I can learn. Uh, and I, I got joy in that. I, I think it's, it's interesting when I think about, I had a, a younger brother at the time who didn't, didn't like it as much as I did. Uh, but I always liked the chance of sort of reinventing myself uh, in a you know, completely different place where no one knew who I was. And so you kinda, you're, you're kind of that, you also had that mystery guy because oftentimes, especially later in life, I would go to a, a new school where you know, the students had been together for years and years. And all of a sudden, this new kid's joining out of nowhere from weird places like Germany. <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, it was kind of night, night, you know, kind of neat being the, the, the international man of mystery at some points during mm. during my life. So. so you mentioned being born in Texas, and obviously you mentioned Germany. I know you speak German, for example, have added value to Motley Fool Deutschland as well. So yeah, well, uh, lots of contributions from you, Matt. Um, where, where else? Uh, a few other ports of call for you? Uh, yeah, we, we spent some time in Arizona, uh, in Kansas, uh, Italy uh, for several months, and uh, Germany twice, and so and then ended up in Massachusetts. So kind of Bounced all, bounced all around. 
Now, I know that you're a sports fan, and I, I'm pretty sure you're a pretty big New England Patriots fan. I know we haven't seen each other in the office for a year or so, but it wouldn't have been unusual for you to be rocking some piece of Patriots paraphernalia. I'm assuming this time of the year, the Red Sox, you are a you have definitely adopted Boston sports. I have adopted, and, and part of that is, is that's kind of my my dad's origins from that area. Ah. So that that's the connection. And uh, I remember when I we were actually we were living in Arizona when my dad was still in the army, and we went to a Patriots game at the old Phoenix Phoenix Cardinal Stadium, and it was the one game the Patriots won that year. They went like one in fifteen. This was like nineteen ninety three. Uh, I want to say it was Bill Parcells' first year. Yeah, and so one in, they went one in fifteen. But I went to that game, and I, you know, I was twelve years old, and it was a blast. And I, I think since then, that was the bug, right? I had heard my dad yell Boston sports for most of my childhood, but that was the game where I was like, I, I'm a Patriots fan. I'm living in Arizona, but I, <laughs> you know, so wherever I go, and we ended up going to Germany and other places. I, I was always kind of a Patriots and mm. Red Sox homer. That's awesome. And Matt, I know we're going to touch on this as we hit the key, the three key moments, making you the investor that you are. But I'm just curious, your associations with money as a kid or growing up, did you have parents who were talking about the stock market or not? So not my parents didn't really talk a lot about money or the stock market. But I do remember that my dad would always watch uh, the Wall Street Week show with Louis Rukeyser. Uh-huh. Uh, kind of Friday you evenings. Know, right. Oh, there you go. So I... Uh, so from watching that, and you, you know, Lewis would always talk a little bit about what happened during the day in the market or the week in the market, and then he'd have right. great guests. And uh, for whatever reason, I just enjoyed sitting with my dad and watching that show. Mm. Later on, um, I as a, as as a kid growing up, I had a uh, I had a lawn mowing business for a while. Uh, I'd mow uh, people's lawns in the neighborhood. Um, I had a paper out, and so I was fortunate enough to have these jobs as a kid where um, you know money became sort of like I want to save money. And unfortunately, a lot of that money went to video games and comic books at the time. So I didn't really save a lot or invest a lot of money. But um, no I, I kind of learned no regrets. Uh, no regrets at all. And I, so I kind of learned the idea, the concept of making money and, and opening a bank account, for example, pretty early on as a kid. Mm. Well, Matt, as I want to do with this series, I'm already probably stealing a little bit ahead of the stock graph of your life. How can we not talk through it? But let's 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 return there and. By the way, Jason mentioned how he first met you. So you, you have to mention a certain meeting that Jason had with a friend of Matt's in the American embassy in Kazakhstan. But start us out. I'm assuming you're starting in the lower left. That's the way most of these stock graphs work. Sure. So yeah, lower. if I start on the lower left, I would say stock graph is, is very volatile early on because uh, I'm moving around. I, you know, I'm, I'm meeting new people. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of navigating this this topsy-turvy route through through life. And I think, to me, I, I could never really embrace any sort of style or process because uh, you know, I, I, was, I was being exposed to so many different things and people. And so I would say, you know, one day I felt like a small cap growth stock. Another day, I probably was like a, a lumbering large cap that pays a big dividend, right? So I didn't really know where I was going. It was kind of you know, zigzagging around um, and no, no, no good direction, no great prospects. Just sort of uh, figuring out my way through the life of, the, of, a, of a chart, mm, at, least, so, at least early on. Okay, so up and down, maybe even looking a little cyclical, even though they're made out of in cycles. It's just That's up right. and down and up and down. And, and w- was there a moment where you started to find the person that you would one day be? Well, I think I was, I was probably a late bloomer. So let's, I'm, 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 I'm very up and down, up and down. Uh, I go to college 
And in college, I, 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 I take a finance class um, and a couple economics classes. This is and at Brandeis. This is at Brandeis, right. And so and as much as I loved Brandeis, the experience and, and, the, and the classes I took, one of the things they really impart with you at Brandeis and many other fine institutions is the efficient market theory. And the idea that you know, individual stock selection is not really, it doesn't give you any advantages. You're better off just buying a market index because that's just the way of the world. All the information is known. Uh, why even mm. speculate in stocks or with, mm. with business? You know, and and that was uh, you know. So I, I feel like my stock graph kind of stagnated big time for <laughs> probably for several years, um, and then something extraordinary happened towards the end of my college, uh, which is uh, a, a long ago ex girlfriend uh, happened to buy, uh, and you'll you'll love this of course, but she happened to buy the Motley Fool Investment Guide, the first paperback edition. Uh, it was. I, I feel like it was a stocking stuffer for Christmas. And the thing is, I didn't read the book uh, for a long time. It kind of stuck on my shelf. And as I was, I was, I was going to study abroad in Denmark uh, towards the end of college for a semester, um, I, I decided to take several books with me that I hadn't read. You know, and I said, okay, I might as well. I'll take some books to read on the plane, and maybe when I'm over there. Uh, and I just so luckily have Motley Fool Investment Guide was one of the five books that I took with me when I went to study abroad. And uh, as I'm as I'm in Denmark, you know, and I'm I'm enjoying studying abroad in, in the city of Copenhagen, which was amazing. I uh, you know, one day I it was a rainy day. I recall I just happened to crack open the Motley Fool Investment Guide, and uh, and and it was just so uh, in the way that I understand rule breaking. It felt so rule breaking at the time because it was just such a departure from what I had thought about markets and how they function in the stock market and selecting individual stocks, and and so you know. I came back to that uh, from that trip, and I, I graduated school shortly after. And I said, "Well, I, I love investing. I, I have this new love for, for investing, and of course, I'm going to buy individual stocks." Uh, and so that's that's kind of what I did. Now, I still don't know what I was doing really well, but I, I had I had a little bit of a guidepost at that point. So I feel like my stock chart started to go up up into the uh, right a little more after that point. And Matt, what year did you graduate Brandeis? Uh, 2002. 2002. One thing that I learned from you about Brandeis, I didn't know that much about it, is it is a university that is, it's non-sectarian, it is co-ed, but it's sponsored by the Jewish community. I think about half of the students identify as Jewish. I'm just curious if that shaped you or changed you in any way, shape, or form. Somebody who admittedly had already been through lots of different cultures and is in maybe a new one right there. Uh, it was it was interesting to be at a school that was majority Jewish. I think when I was there, it was probably at least sixty percent ah. uh, Jewish. Um, and uh, I loved I, I relished the opportunity to learn about that culture, and I kind of participated in the culture. I made great friends and learned and and you know went to spend holidays with them at their at their uh, fam with their families, and and that was just it was such a great, interesting new perspective for me. Um, mm -hmm. But it wasn't you know it wasn't the reason I went to Brandeis. Certainly, it wasn't uh, it wasn't anything that I took away other than I, I made a great, I made great friends, learned about a new culture. Uh, and that I, things like that, I think really color your life as you go forward. You, um, having those different perspectives and those experiences. You bet. All right, Matt. So you said 2002 to Brandeis, and I know we talked about 2008 at the Motley Fool. So let's move to this part of your stock graph, which is kind of a mystery to me. Six years. The only thing I know for sure about those years, Matt, is that you had a mutual friend with Jason some dude hanging out in the American <laughs> embassy in Kazakhstan. But what was Matt Argusinger doing during those six years? 
So I, I got a job uh, shortly after graduation at the uh, U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis down in D.C. Uh, so I'd never been, I'd, I'd been to Washington once as a kid, you know, uh, just to tour it. Uh, so it was exciting to get a job in a new city, uh, leaving Boston, coming down to Washington, D.C. And the job was great. It was a great first job. I, I spent most of that time uh, crunching numbers, calculating GDP and trade balances and, and things like that. It was, it was, it was an interesting job. Uh, and at the same time, doing theater, at, at moonlighting as a community stage actor, as we talked about, the Little Theater of Alexandria and, and other places. Uh, and yes, to that, that story with the, the Jason Moser connection. So I, a longtime high school friend of mine from Germany that we remain in touch and, and still really close friends to this day, um, he works for the State Department. Uh, Jason's wife worked for the State Department. And my friend gets, happens to get stationed in Kazakhstan, uh, you know, mid-2000s. And, uh, you know, we were always talking about investment ideas and other things. And he says, well, I, you know, I met this great guy at the Kazakhstan embassy. His name's Jason. Uh, he totally loves the Motley Fool, by the way. Uh, you know, I think he even subscribes to one of those newsletters that you subscribe to because I was a subscriber as well. And uh, you, guys should, you guys should talk at some point or hang out. And I was like, sure, fine, no problem. Uh, but <laughs> fast forward a few years later, uh, and, and by the way, this is after, I'll tell the story really quickly. After I started working at The Motley Fool, um, I happened to, my, my friend came home, he had been abroad for several years, came back for a while, and he said, hey, I'm going down to Georgia to hang out with that Jason guy I knew from the, the Kazakhstan embassy. Uh, we're going to play some golf and hang out. If you're free for a long weekend, you should come with us. And so I said, sure, why not? Of course. Uh, so my friend and I, my high school friend, I go down there. Um, and I meet Jason for the first time. Um, we and I meet his daughters, which at the time I think were five years old and two years old, very very young at the time. <laughs> but we have a we have a great time. You know, we 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 play golf and we 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 talk and uh, and he's like, you know, my he tells Jason he he probably doesn't want me to tell him, but he he admitted at the time he's like, you know, my dream job would be working at the Motley Fool. <laughs> and I remember telling him at the time, well, you know, Jason, they have this uh, analyst development program at the Motley Fool. Uh, that. I, I've done, I've did it. It was, it was great. You know, when they have an, another cohort come up, you should totally apply to it. Uh, and sure enough, about six months, nine months later, he applied for that. And all well, the rest is Jason. And he got history. in. I'm not so, even sure you pulled any strings for him. I didn't have to pull any strings. I think he came in so full of passion and <laughs> he kind of overwhelmed the team. So he was a, was that a great is wonderful. By the way, the capital of Kazakhstan say is Nur Sultan, which is the renamed Astana uh, or Astana as, 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 as so, you know, I want like to get our facts right. So U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, Matt, um, how long were you there? Uh, what was the high point? <sighs> you know, I was there, for, I was there just over five years. I think some of the, you know, one of the high points was we had some big methodology changes about how we calculated the trade, the U.S. trade balance. And so, that might not sound all exciting, but you, you, we got access to all kinds of new data, and that was interesting. And we thought it made our statistics more accurate because the BEA, as it's known, is a, is a very statistical organization. Mm-hmm. It's cited by a lot of research reports and, and banks, and when they come out with the reports, and uh, and that's so we're you know our data is always it's just always a matter of trying to make the data more accurate. Um, and so while I'm doing this work at the BEA, which was good, which was fun, um, I was I was sort of spending a lot of time on Motley Fool discussion boards. Um, in addition to doing theater at night. Yeah. And, uh, that was, you know, I have a funny story about joining the Motley Fool because I was, I was on the discussion boards and I was subscribed to Hidden Gems, which was a newsletter we had at the time. I was subscribed to Stock Advisor as well. 
and I got him and I was writing on the boards and I got a message one day from, oh, I can't remember her name. I think her name was Claire, but from The Motley Fool who said, hey, we're, we're starting this new analyst development program. We like what you've been writing on the boards. Consi- you should consider applying. And I, was, I said, okay, I'll, that sounds exciting. Um, never thought about working for The Motley Fool, but I'll, I'll give it a try. So I filled out the application at the time. And I was, thankfully, fortunately, I was invited to do an interview. But I remember, this is embarrassing, but I, I remember asking her at the time, well, uh, where, is, where is The Motley Fool? Where am I going for the interview? And she said, well, you, you can get on the Metro, right? And I said, oh, uh, what do you mean? Where is The Motley <laughs> Fool? And she's metro? Like, oh, it's in Alexandria, Virginia. And I said, and she's like, you're in DC, right? And I said, oh my gosh, I had no idea. You know, my brain was thinking it's either in California or it's in New York City. I'm going to get on a plane tomorrow or something. You know, I'm, get, I'm expecting mm. to get on a flight. And sure enough, the next day I get on the Metro, <laughs> you know, 20 minute Metro ride down to Alexandria, Virginia from DC. It is funny. The reason we started in the area is simply because Tom and I were born into the city. But for a lot of reasons, we always could have been venture-fueled and California-based. And for a lot of reasons, we could have been New York City, Wall Street all the way. We've always enjoyed triangulating and having our own unique position just outside the nation's capital, which is an important place, too. But I, yeah, I'm, that probably really made it possible for us to work together, Matt. That made it a lot easier, and I'm delighted to know that. Well, just closing out with the stock graph, Matt, I mean, I don't want you to feel like you have to say it's been all up from there in a lot of ways. I think for what the value you've added to our company, it's been it's been great all the way through. Any reflections on 13 years of graphing your Motley Fool life? Well, there's no doubt, David, it's it's been, and I'm sure everyone on this is going to say that, but it's been really up and to the right with the Motley Fool. But it's, for me, it was up and to the right for a few specific reasons. I think Joining you on Stock Advisor, joining you on Rule Breakers, and eventually Supernova, those experiences really taught me the value, I think, of buying into great companies, but investing in them again and again and again. And I think that when I, you know, as seasoned as I thought I was an investor and everything I learned, that was still an impulse I didn't, I sort of rejected, which was the idea of, okay, well, I bought this stock at $50. I think it's a great company, but no way I'm going to add to the stock at 100 or 200 or 500, you know, and working with you, especially, but and then kind of working at the Motley Fool really just convinced me that that is the right way to invest. And so I have, you know, I, when I got rid of that, my investing hit new extraordinary heights that I could never, I never dreamed, you know, um, I mean, I'm sitting in a house right today that I, in my wildest dreams, never thought I could afford for my family, but it's there because, you know, I was able to buy Amazon half a dozen times or Mercado Libre Amazing. or uh, you know, other other great companies over and over again at much higher prices. And uh, that was that was to me the, the, the breakthrough, I guess, for my uh, investing career and why it's really been up to the right. Well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that, Matt. I'm never really sure who's buying what stock among our employees, who owns what or believes what. But And, and I know we're going to talk some about real estate, which is obviously such a passion of yours and a big focus. Now, I'm sure that's at least one of the three key investor moments. But before we go there, I know you got a young family. Anything you want to say just from a family standpoint before we go right to brass hard tax and talk money? <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 I think I've actually said this to you, David, but I think when I, when I reflect back on my life and the entire stock graph, as, as t- up and to the right as it's been since uh, I joined The Fool, I think whatever I did to meet my wife, uh, you know, I, I, I happened to go to an audition at a theater on a given day 
where she happened to be there. I happened to get cast in the show. So, so did she. And I remember after the audition, I prayed that we both get cast in the show because I wanted to meet her again. Uh, but that, that moment, whatever led me to that moment, mistakes or no mistakes, um, I point to that as sort of the biggest sort of game changer. I'm, and we're not, we're going to talk about investing, but just life. That was the game changer. My life was, was meeting her. And then now um, I, I do have a two-year-old son uh, named Dutch. Um, so that was great. It took us, it took us uh, actually many years. Um, I'm a little in advanced age to have a, a child, um, but it took us many years to have Dutch. And so he's been a, a gift um, mm. and a blessing for the family. So happy so. to hear you. That is, that is wonderful. And I, ever since I first heard the name Dutch, I just thought that's awesome, <laughs> and I, I just I love the name Dutch. I mean, what a what a what a what a home run name and and home run kid. So good for him, and thank you for sharing that, Matt. And let's go to the three key moments that have made you the investor that you are. What's number one? So I mentioned, you know, that stock investing wasn't wasn't too big when I was a kid, but um, it was around the time I was, um, you know, having my paper out and and doing my lawn mowing. I did manage to save some money. And so I did want to buy my first stock. And this was probably when I was 11 or 12 years old. And the stock I wanted to buy, I think you'll appreciate this, David, is a company called Sierra Online, which was a <laughs> computer game company. Um, they, they made great games like King's Quest and Space Quest. And these are the games yeah, I was playing well. when I was in elementary and middle school. And I was delighted to learn that they, they were publicly traded. And so I saved up, uh, gosh, I want, I want to say it was $500, which to me seemed like the world, of course, when I was 11 or 12 years old. It's a lot of work. Um, and, but my parents convinced me that you can't buy stock in a video game company, Matt. You have to buy a stock in a Japanese company because the Japanese companies are taking over the world. And so instead of investing my $500 in Sierra Online, which I really wanted to do, I invested in a company called Wang Laboratories, which in about a year after I bought it went to zero. <laughs> Oh my god! Or almost zero. They were trying and to turn around. I remember at some point it might have, it might have, but it was it was the early to mid nineties where it was you know the the, the Japanese market crashed and oh. and I, I it was it wasn't until many years later when I look back at Sierra Online that if I had bought that stock it went up I think it went up four or five x and then it was eventually bought out by another company that I think eventually came, turned into Electronic Arts. I it gets a little shaky there, but. Um, so later on in life, I mean, I, many years later, after I cleared my head of the efficient market thesis and was at the full, um, it was one of those things that said, you know, I'm only really ever going to buy companies I, I love mm -hmm. and that delight me and that I can understand. And, and that's that was a, a little bit of a so that's why I point back to that moment. It's sort of a pivotal moment. Um, investment Great moment one. For me. Great one, Matt. Now, you know, I was just looking up Wang Labs. Um, a Massachusetts company. I mean, assuming you were in and around Massachusetts at the time, that had to be weighing heavy. They weren't a Japanese company. They weren't a, uh, it almost sounds like it could be a Chinese name. It happened to be an immigrant, An Wang, who uh, started Wang Labs. And it was a sensation for some decades. Uh, it was listed as part of the Massachusetts miracle, if that's a phrase that comes tripping to your okay, tongue. So maybe my parents were onto something. It didn't, it didn't, yeah. it didn't work out for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally understand. It did not end well for for Wang Labs, but uh, what a great takeaway and learning. And you know, I, any little kid is saving five hundred bucks. I mean, back then, I mean, back in our day, Matt, and I'm a little bit older than you, so maybe I should say back in your day, you probably weren't pulling down a lot of dollars per hour. So five hundred dollars—that's substantial effort to have that saved. And uh, I, I can appreciate your parents' point. I kind of see it up to a point, but ultimately, you pulled away the important lesson that helped guide you from there. What was key investor moment number two for you? So this one's probably not uh, going to be that interesting only because I, I really did mention it, but it really was 
taking that Motley Fool investment guide with me mm-hmm. uh, when I studied abroad. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I have to, it's, it's in an odd way, I have to thank the ex-girlfriend at the time who, for whatever reason, I don't know why I should ask her, I, I shouldn't, but, you know, why did she buy that book for me? Why did she give me that book? You know, and because it was just so out of left field. And, and but that, I, the arc of my life that made investing life made such a difference to me. Um, just reading, the, having a chance to read that book while while in school. So, well, that's so much fun for me and for Tom to hear. And certainly, you know, I mean, whether it was a, a radio show we were doing back in the day, AM radio, and then NPR, or the books that we wrote, we never knew who was listening or who was reading. Oh. Uh, it wasn't until we really launched with Stock Advisor, which was a service that was ours. It wasn't a product of Simon & Schuster. It wasn't a product of National Public Radio. It was our subscribers. And when they sent their credit card our way, we knew who was our customer. And then they would renew from one year to the next. And as you well know, Matt, because you came some years after that, Rick Engdahl knows because he was around for even longer. But that shift of business models from sort of a free ad-supported site uh, with other people's products, other people's books, Simon Schuster, other people's shows, NPR, to the Motley Fool subscription, starting with Stock Advisor, such a critical moment. And and gosh, we launched as a newsletter in July of 1993. It took us about nine years to get back to our original business model, which remains mainly how we butter our bread today. Although Million Acres, among others, has a couple of different business models in play for our company today. Well, thank you for highlighting that one, Matt. I'm so delighted to know that. And I mean, were were you inclined to read investment books? I know you were a, partly an econ major in college. Did you, did you go on to read some other books? I did. I mean, I, you know, I, beyond that, I, of course, I read several of Peter Lynch's books, the Buffett right. books, um, Shelby Davis. You know, I, I, I kind of uh, went, went on a, a tour of all the, uh, the big investing greats. Um, yep. So, Well, you have, I, I'm not going to say assiduously avoided because I don't think you would, but you haven't really mentioned your life in real estate. And we're getting to key investor moment number three. So I hope you're going to wrap in your present calling and where that came from with this one. This is, yeah, this is it. So, we all know, we know what happened last. Well, maybe now, fifteen years ago. It's getting late, but the you know the, the last great financial crisis with the the housing recession that we had there. So, my uh, my wife and I we got married. We went to uh, we did a great honeymoon in Kilimanjaro, and then we came back and we, we you know we, we were interested. We we liked living in Washington D.C. In, in the Capitol Hill neighborhood, but for many years we'd look around for you know, for houses. And it was just, it was really tough. I mean, you're just competing with so many other bidders and, and the prices just seemed obscene. And based on what we were making at the time, it just, all the houses we saw were out of reach. But we we come back and we, we found a house and it was, uh, it had been on the market for some reason for a while. And um, in DC, in the older parts of DC, all the houses, as you know, David and Rick, um, they often come with an English basement apartment that you can rent out. And so, we, we, we sort of said, okay, well, we could buy this house, rent out the basement apartment, and probably afford the mortgage, or at least almost afford the mortgage. <laughs> so, we, so we made an offer. We, we ended up getting the house. And as we're, we're kind of moving into the house and cleaning it out and getting it ready, um, my wife happens to read an article in the New York Times. Uh, and the, it's a story about this up-and-coming company called Airbed and Breakfast, which we all know today, of course, is Airbnb. Uh, but it was called Airbed and Breakfast at the time. And it was, you know, it said, "Hey, rent your. You can if you have an apartment or a room at your house, you can rent it out for short periods of time, uh, and you know it's very simple. We got a great website. Come check it out. Of course, we did. 
And I have to say that was a big game changer because we we sort of listed, we were one of the first houses in Capitol Hill in DC at the time. I think there were like two other Airbnb listings uh, to list. And uh, the demand was just, we couldn't keep up. I mean, we listed it wow. and we kept raising the price. Demand never stopped. And it was one of the reasons was the house was right next to Union Station in DC. So it was really convenient for people who were coming into the city. But the success we had with that really propelled us into real estate. For we, we ended up buying a couple more houses. Well, um, we recently bought this house that we live in, but um, that became sort of a pattern for us. We were looking for opportunities to sort of house hack our way into real estate investing um, by buying, renting out, renovating, and doing that. And today we have several rental properties uh, throughout the city. Um, I was able then to learn about commercial real estate investing, so I, 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 I've done some of that as well over the years. And then, of course, that all led to um, a few years ago, uh, several of us here at The Motley Fool launching Million Acres. We, we thought we finally had a good no- amount of real estate knowledge to pass around. We, we had, there was some technology and regulatory changes in the market that really opened up the real estate market for retail investors. And so, that, uh, having not, if I had not done that, what we did with my wife, you know, gosh, now 11, 12 years ago, which buying our first house, um, I don't think, uh, I don't think I'd, I'd be here focused on real estate as much as I am today. So that was the other key moment. I love that Gene was the one who read the article in New York Times, just like an ex-girlfriend handed you the Molly Full Investment Guide. It is the distaff side of your life that is driving the professional uh, achievements in your life. And that's just a spectacular story. Thank you for sharing that. You're also reminding me, Matt, I would love to have you back on an episode maybe in later in the spring or, or early summer, just talking some about real estate investing and w- what you've learned with Million Acres and what you're doing. A lot of people listening to you right now, about two-thirds of whom are in the US, but a third of our listeners are, are international, global. But everybody has a chunk of real estate near them or an opportunity to drop down an airbed in and around the place that they live. And certainly a lot of people are Airbnb, a recent stock pick for Motley Fool Stock Advisors as well. But Matt, we should have you back on and talk real estate investing because it's been way too long and it's too interesting and too relevant. So thank you for sharing that. I I would love to do that, David. And uh, I'm sure you'll ask me about Etsy's market cap again. And (laughs) I got to make sure I nail it again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Matt, this was a delight. Thank you so much for coming on Rule Breaker Investing and telling your story. I know there's no way ever to capture it all. And I always find myself with more questions at the end, but time being what it is, uh, we're going to call it right there. Matt Argersinger, thanks again for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you, Deb. Well, again, thank you to my friends, Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger. Not my friends, yours. Yours too. You got to know them a lot better this week. And a reminder, that coming up next week, it's going to be a review of Palooza episode. Yep, we're looking over five stocks for the coronavirus, five stocks for the age of miracles, and five stocks I own that you should too. But I think I want to reiterate one thing here at close. If you're an investor, and the truth is we are all investors, whether we know ourselves by that name or not, we are all investing our time and our money in things throughout the day, every week, every day. So I should say that If you have switched on to that and you recognize that you are an investor, maybe it took a chance meeting in a Central Asian embassy to switch you on, you will realize that your story will inevitably be shaped by the investing that you do, that stock stories and our stories become intertwined, weave their way through our lives. And here's one more key insight. Boy, if it isn't also true that the more investing you do, And the more care that you take with it and the better you do, that story 
of your creation has a better and better chance of being a story with more and more possibilities in life. Oh, the places you'll go. And a story, I hope, with a very happy ending. So to close again with a Hamilton lyric, and when you're gone, who remembers your name? Who keeps your flame? Who tells your story? As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.